Well, take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter number one, Mark chapter number one. And if there's someone who knows how to turn this off, just, in a, just an impromptu survey. How many of you hear this air conditioner like I do? You have sensitive hearing and you hear it rattling all the time. Um, can, can we get somebody to go turn that off? Is there someone who knows how to do it? I'll do it. Time out. All right. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter number one. And I'm going to turn this off because... Just call me crazy. Look at that. Do you hear the difference? Maybe, my, maybe I'm just easily distracted by noises and sights, and which is not good in a church this beautiful with windows like that. We're all, always competing with deer and turkeys and ducks and all kinds of things. But anyway, take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. I'm so excited to get back into our study this week. I hope last week's message was a blessing and encouragement to you. And today we continue our study, and just to pick up where we left off a little bit, I want to remind you of what Mark emphasizes. So as we study this book, I want you to see that Mark emphasizes the actions of Jesus and the events that happen in Jesus' life over his teaching, although we do see some of his teaching in this book, of course, but Mark doesn't major on that. Mark is a book of action. You'll see the word immediately or straightway over 40 times in this book. So he is about boom, 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 like a, like a series of dominoes. How many of you, when you're growing up, you built your domino train and then you knocked over the dominoes, you know, and they just went. That's really what the book of Mark is like. As you're reading it, think of those dominoes falling over in rapid succession because that's what we're going to see even today with how Mark starts or he jumps ahead in the life of Jesus. And you wouldn't recognize it unless you compare Mark with the other three gospels. So Mark is a book of action, he's a book of events, and he really does give to you the people's reaction to Jesus. You'll, you'll see this on several occasions here in our study today, how people responded to Jesus is fascinating. And so that's really great for us too, because it challenges us in how we respond to Jesus and how we react to the truth of the life of Christ in our own life. And then, of course, Mark's primary focus is to present Jesus as the suffering servant king. And so the title of the message today is simply this, The King and His Kingdom. The King and His Kingdom. Have you ever heard someone make an incredible claim that you were skeptical of? Maybe your brother or sister growing up made an incredible claim like, hey, I can fly like Superman. And you're like, no, not going to believe that. Uh, we, we all know that um, people make extraordinary claims, but if someone makes an extraordinary claim, they better have equal extraordinary evidence to back up that claim, to support that claim. Um, here in the Gospel of Mark, Mark is making some incredible claims about this man named Jesus. He calls him the Christ, which means the chosen one of God, the Messiah. And he also says that this Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God. If you look back at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we looked at this verse several weeks ago. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So Mark says that this good news, this life-changing news is about a person named Jesus who is called the Messiah the Christ, the Son of God. That's an extraordinary claim, wouldn't you agree? I mean, if someone was to make the claim today that they were God, they better have uh, extraordinary evidence to back up that claim. 
But what's interesting here is how Mark chapter 1 starts. It continues in this next uh, section of chapter 1 in verses 14 and 15. Look at those verses with me. It says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, and here's an extraordinary claim, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Extraordinary claim. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So these are extraordinary claims that are being made here. That word gospel we're going to dig into here a little bit more this week, here in just a moment. And what we're going to see here in our passage of study today is that Mark is going to then proceed after these extraordinary claims to give extraordinary evidence to back up those claims that are being made here in his book. Of course, the main claim here in our study today is that Jesus is the king of a new kingdom and he has all kingdom authority to establish this kingdom and rule and reign as king. The question before us today as we study this passage is, will we follow this king with our life? Will we trust this king with our eternal life? Will we see his kingdom as worthy of our life and our pursuit? Or will we continue to build our own little kingdoms that are destined to fall? What we're going to discover today in this journey is that Jesus is the king of love and he promises that any kingdom you give up here on this earth is worth it in order to follow him and live for his kingdom. So let's pray and we'll read our text. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the gospel and for how it transforms our life. And God, I pray that your spirit would be our teacher today that through your word you would be glorified and magnified and that your people would be edified and built up and that there is anyone here today that has never received you first as their savior and then if they've not ever made that decision to follow you as their lord and their master i pray that today they would make that decision and lord that you would be glorified as we respond to your word today we pray in jesus name amen Let's read our passage of scripture here this morning. I'm going to give you a little bit of commentary as we go throughout because I find that this passage, and of course Mark, is just very fascinating to me. For instance, one little tidbit. From verse 13 to verse 14, you have a year jump in the story of the life of Jesus. And you wouldn't recognize that unless you're carefully piecing together Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically, but even John. And so what Mark does is he skips ahead a whole year in the journey and in the ministry of Jesus. And really Mark's entire gospel focuses on the final two years of Jesus's earthly ministry. Jesus had a total of about three and a half years, but Mark really is only focusing on the final two or two and a half years. So verse 14, now after that, John was put in prison. So there's a time marker for you where you can get an idea of the chronological progression here. So Jesus had ministered in Judea for about a year, and now he comes to really focus his ministry in the area of Galilee, specifically in the city of Capernaum, which we're going to look at here in a moment. And for those who have been to the Holy Land, you can immediately think of Capernaum, can't you? That's where we had St. Peter's Fish. That's where we did a tour of the synagogue that they 
they believe, was very close to the first century, um, maybe fourth century, but anyway, uh, Capernaum. All right, so anyway, getting off, lots of stuff to talk about, but this is incredible text. So now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So Mark here is starting off again this study this week with an amazing claim. And what he's going to do here is he's going to, uh, he chooses to make the first words that Jesus speaks. Notice if you have a red letter Bible, these are the first words of Jesus that Mark records for us. And Jesus is making an incredible claim. Repent, the kingdom of the gospel of the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And so Mark's focus here in our passage today that we're studying is given to show the authority of this king that's making this claim. He is announcing a quote-unquote new kingdom, and there's a lot of ways that we could understand that. Technically, God's kingdom has always been here, but, but as we know... Um, the kingdom was set up in creation, and then Adam and Eve were given uh, rule and dominion over that kingdom, and they chose to do what? They chose to dethrone God, or attempt to, and make themselves their own king through the fall, through the curse. And because of that, Satan, uh, many theologians would say, swindled that authority, that dominion that had been given to Adam and Eve, and thus Jesus, the last Adam, had to come and take back legally what the first Adam had lost. And so what's interesting is where all this shows up because what happens in verses 12 and 13 of Mark chapter 1? The temptation of Jesus where Satan is confronting the king and Jesus overcomes that confrontation. He comes out of the wilderness. And just think about this. Jesus was a true and better last Adam. He was a true and better final representative for the human race. Think about it. Adam fell in a garden full of lush, surrounded by food. Jesus didn't fall in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting surrounded by no food. He also, Adam, fell in the midst of relationship right there with his wife Eve. Jesus was all alone for 40 days in the wilderness, isolated. And yet he said no to the temptations of the, of the devil. He trusted the heart of his father. He put his faith in God's word. And oh, what an encouragement to us as we see now that the king is coming out of the wilderness. He's been tested and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. That word gospel, uh, it's incredible. It, it, of course, we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's news that brings joy, but it's not just daily news that brings joy. This word gospel has the idea of history-making, life-shaping news that brings joy. And so Mark presents Jesus as the king, but not in a way that anyone would expect. Um, he doesn't come as a conquering military king, Rather, he comes as a suffering servant king, as we'll get into here in our study. The first time we hear Jesus' voice here in Mark's gospel, he says, repent and believe the gospel. What is Jesus saying when he says repent? He's, he's saying, change your mind. 
Change your mind about a whole host of things. Number one, change your mind about the sin that you've been seeking since the garden. It will never fulfill you. It will never satisfy you. Number two, change your mind in what you're trusting in to gain righteousness and standing with God. You must repent. It's, there's no hope in the law. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. So change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about the law. It cannot justify. And then finally, change your mind about who I say I am. I am the son of God. I am the seed of David. I am, I am the one that was even promised to Abraham. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the savior of the world. And so Jesus is saying, repent, change your mind, believe the gospel, believe who I am. Believe me that I am the king of this new kingdom. Trust me, follow me. And so this gospel was news of, uh, so, so, so this word gospel was news of some event that changed things in a meaningful way. Um, it could be the ascension to the throne or it could be a military victory when Greece was invaded by Persia and the Greeks won the great battles of Marathon and Solness. They sent heralds who proclaimed the good news to the cities that they, we have fought for you, we have won, and now you're no longer slaves. You are free. A gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that's been done for you that changes your status forever. Wow, isn't that great? That this gospel is not just some, oh, good daily news. This is life-changing, history-making news. This changes our status forever, church. And what joy that it is. It brings a smile to our face, even in the darkest of valleys. It brings hope, even in the most hopeless moments. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. And what is that good news? Christ is king. He will rule and reign forever. He is the only one worthy to loose the seals and open the scroll because he has conquered the usurper king of this world and he will rule and reign forever. And so Jesus says here, repent and believe the gospel. And so in order to enter the kingdom, you must know and trust in this king and Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant king that would lay down his life as the last Adam and crush the evil king's head. So how did Jesus display this kingdom authority, this kingly authority? That's Mark's focus here in this passage. All right, so let's read verse 16. Actually, well, we'll go ahead and read it in order. Verses 16 through 20, we're going to come back to at the end of our study. But let's go ahead and read them. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were, here's, here's the reactions, notice, and they were astonished at his doctrine. So the people's response to Jesus, to his teaching, they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority. So there's Mark's thrust here in this passage. He wants to show you that these incredible claims that Jesus has made are backed with authority. So he taught as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Ooh, can't wait to come back to that. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. So a demon-possessed man was in the synagogue. 
Imagine that. We'll come back to that too. Um, ah, I wish I could stop, but we will. Um, can you tell I'm excited today? I'm excited about studying this. This is going to be great. We're going to really enjoy this, sinking our teeth in. Uh, and, 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 of course, the demon said this, verse 24. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all, here's another reaction, they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, but Simon's wife's mother. Now, aren't you glad that it says Simon's wife's mother? It doesn't say Simon's mother-in-law. So it'd be good if we referred to our wife's mother as, you know, Rebecca's, my, yeah, yeah. Uh, I shouldn't refer, refer to as a mother-in-law. Mother in love. There you go. That's even better. You know, that's how we should refer to our in-laws. Uh, it's just neat how, how the Bible says this. It doesn't say in-law here. It says Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever. I'm sure she appreciated that. And uh, the title, and, and, and not just in-law. And, and anon, and, and, and immediately they told, told him of her sickness. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left and she ministered unto them. And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of different diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the demons or the devils to speak because they knew him. Whew. We're going to stop there. That's all we can get to today. That's a full day. That was one day in the life of Jesus. He had a lot to do. And as we're going to study next week, he got up early the next morning. Why? Why was it so important? Well, we'll look at that next week. But let's look at these verses here and see four things that really back up the authority of Jesus' claim that he is king and how these things apply and minister to our own life. First of all, we see the teaching of the king. Mark wants you to see that this king, King Jesus, the suffering servant king, had authority in his teaching. He had authority in his teaching. Look back at verses 21 and 22. I told you we're going to come back to verses 16 through 20 at the end of our sermon, and there's a reason for that. But look at verses 21 and 22 at his teaching. It says, and they went into Capernaum. Now, the reason they went into Capernaum, and as you study the life of Jesus, you'll find that he spent a large part of his ministry here. Now, he was in Galilee. What other city is in Galilee? Nazareth is in the region of Galilee. So why wouldn't Jesus be in Nazareth? Well, he had already gone into the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke chapter number 4. And when he tried to preach with authority in his hometown synagogue, you know what they tried to do? They tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to actually kill their hometown um, hero or their hometown guy. And um, just goes to show you that uh, they uh, did not receive him. He came into his own, and his own received him not. And so Jesus didn't minister in, in Nazareth, uh, not much. He, he chose to focus on Capernaum. And, and Capernaum is interesting. Notice the location of his teaching. He was in a city that 
it was actually said that Capernaum was worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus says, woe to thee, Capernaum, woe to thee, uh, uh, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and, and, and several others. For the things had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. So Capernaum was a pretty messed up city. Um, it was a coastal town right there on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Capernaum had, had a lot of things not going right for it, clearly. So I want you to notice that Jesus is ministering here at Capernaum, right here in the center of the world. But at the same time, he's in the synagogue, which is in Capernaum. And he brings this teaching. On the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine. Why were they astonished? Why did they respond? And this word astonished in the Greek is fascinating. It literally means to get smacked upside the head with bewilderment. I mean, it's like, there's, I think there's three Greek words that can be translated as astonished. This is the most powerful, ek, ekbalo. I mean, crazy, slapped upside the head, what? Almost incredulous astonishment. So almost mixed in with a little bit of unbelief, okay? They were astonished at his doctrine. Why were they astonished? For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. So I want you to notice not only the location of his teaching here at Capernaum in the synagogue, but number two, the content of the teaching of this king. Mark uses the term authority for the first time. The word literally means, I love this, it literally means out of the original stuff. So if you want to write that down, the word authority literally means here, out of the original stuff. It comes from the same root as the word author. Author. Imagine Jesus is standing, teaching from the scrolls that he wrote. He's going to have authority, isn't he? He's the author. But it goes even deeper than that. I think what Mark is saying here is that he means that Jesus taught about life with, a rat, with original rather than derived authority. He didn't just clarify something that they already knew or simply interpret the scriptures in the way the teachers of the law did. As you study this passage out and you study the first century, you'll find out that the scribes got up in the synagogue, the teachers in the synagogue got up and they really just gave you a whole lot of, this is what Rabbi so-and-so says, or this is what tradition tells us, or this is what uh, this, this resource tells us. There was really no clarity in their teaching. It was all a lot of religious rules, religious mumbo-jumbo. Of course, they added stuff on top of the laws of the Old Testament to make sure you didn't break the main laws. They added secondary laws. And so notice that Jesus steps into religion in the center of a messed up town, and he teaches as one that has authority. He didn't just clarify something they already knew. He didn't tell you what Rabbi so-and-so says. His listeners sensed somehow that he was explaining the story of their lives as the author. And it left them dumbfounded. So the content of his teaching was the truth, the truth of God's word. We'll come back to that here in a little bit when we see the response of the demon. But the content of his teaching was doctrine. They were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And notice the reaction of the teaching. They were bewildered. This was uncommon for them to hear truth, clear and simple. 
to hear God's Word speaking to their lives. Sadly, the synagogues in Jesus' day offered nothing vital for the listener. And as a result, when Jesus spoke, they were astonished at his doctrine. Now, let's just stop and take a moment to think about this. Doesn't that really, though, describe a lot of religious institutions today? People go and they sit through an hour, an hour and a half of religious ritual. They hear words, but it's as if nothing actually speaks to them. It's, it's just a lot of Dr. So-and-so says this, the Reader's Digest says this, this tradition says this, and there's no thus says the Lord. And what Jesus does is he steps into this religious institution that was all about the doctrines and commandments of men, and he gives to people the truth of who God is and who they are in him. So we see the teaching of this king the teaching of Jesus' words carried authority. It was out of the original stuff. It was as if the author of their lives was speaking to them. But number two, we see not only the teaching of the king that shows his authority, but number two, the power of the king. The power of this king. Look at verses 23 and 24. Now notice where this demon-possessed man was. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. You might say, why are demons in synagogues? Why are demons in religious institutions? Because the devil loves to masquerade himself as an angel of light. And so no wonder there were demons here in the synagogue. And there was a man with an unclean spirit. And notice the response. He cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Notice that the first miracle that Mark records in his gospel is a miracle in the spiritual realm. Why did Mark choose to give us this as his first miracle? Because Jesus has already had a year of ministry, right? What was the official first miracle of Jesus, according to the book of John? when he turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. So here, it's interesting that Mark chooses to, to, to give this one as the first one. Why did he choose to do this? Because, I believe, God, only God, is in control of the spiritual realm. He alone, here's the idea of authority again, he alone has authority over the demonic forces of evil. And Mark brings this miracle account first, this, this delivering of this demoniac in the synagogue, because one, if Jesus has power in the spiritual realm, then he has power in any realm. And number two, he does this because he's pointing to the fact that only God could do this. Look at verse 27. It says, They were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commands he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. It's funny. I mean, as you study this passage out and as you keep going, really up until Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it's as if nobody could figure out who Jesus was except one group, the demons. The demons knew who Jesus was, 
right here. They're like, what have we to do with thee? Are you come to destroy us? Have you come to judge us already? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. The only group, even his disciples, until Peter's declaration, didn't get it. It's funny that the demons are the only ones that know who Jesus is for a good chunk of the book of Mark. So what Mark is showing us here is the power of this king and the authority that this power holds. Jesus teaches with authority and he commands the spiritual realm with authority. Now notice, why did this demon cry out? In fact, as you study scripture, you'll find that in the few demonic encounters in God's word, whenever they encounter Jesus, they cry out. Why is that? Two reasons I'll give to you. It says that they cry out. Also, also it says in the book of James chapter 2, verse 19, that the devils tremble, they shudder. Why do the devils tremble and shudder and cry out when they hear Jesus? Well, number one, because of the authority of his word. Going back, notice that this devil cries out when he hears the teaching of the king. The authority of his word. This is the idea of Jesus. and He has cosmic authority. He is the king of the kingdom of God. And this devil cries out because this devil knows that Jesus is teaching truth. And you know what truth does? It sets free. And who doesn't want people free? The enemy. Satan. Satan, it says, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine unto them. And so when the devil, sitting in the synagogue, the devil was happy up until this day, sitting in the synagogue, but when the truth comes out, the devil cries out because he hates God's word, because he knows that the truth of God's word sets free. Demons, the devil, he is a liar. And they know that God's truth, Jesus' truth, exposes them and frees their captives. The demons knew that they had developed a false system of religion in that day, and it held people captive to their destruction. This demon was in the synagogue, disguised as probably a very righteous and religious person outwardly. But Satan is a liar, and he concocts false systems of religion. And the Bible calls us to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience, the authority of Jesus Christ. The world hates the truth of Scripture because the truth is not in them. Jesus said this in John chapter 8. He said to the religious leaders who were accusing him, he says, you are of your father the devil. The truth is not in him and the truth is not in you. And so why did the demons cry out? Because they heard the truth and they knew that the truth would set people free. And so the demons cried out and they were right there in the synagogue. Let that soak and marinate for a while. I wonder how many forces of evil are in religious institutions across this world today, very happy with what goes on most of the time because the message is do better, try harder, and maybe God will love you enough to let you in. That, my friends, is the lie of the devil. It is not the truth, and he will try to resist the truth. He will try to quint. He will try to silence the truth. But praise God, truth triumphs. And so they did not like the authority of Jesus' word. That's why they cry out. They also cry out because of the authority of his judgment. Notice the passage. It says, are you come to destroy us? They knew that when Jesus stepped on the scene, they knew when God stepped on the scene, they were in trouble. 
Have you come to destroy us? This, this kind of demon possession has always been a reality in the world. Um, demons have always had sway with those in their domain. But what happened with the ministry of Jesus was, was not parallel to anything before or after. In fact, if you study demon possession in the Bible, there's no accounts in the Old Testament of this happen, happening. Although we know that demons were there, um, demons are always involved in worship of, of false gods. So you can see a lot of false god worship in the Old Testament. And we know that they were there, but they weren't um, uh, uh, noticed. Oh, they were there, but they weren't noticed. They get noticed here in the Gospels and just a couple of times in the book of Acts. Um, Acts chapter 19 or 18, I believe, where a demon-possessed girl is delivered in the city of Ephesus. And on one other occasion... And outside of the Gospels and those couple of times in Acts, there's no other mentions of demonic possession in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament epistles. Why? It's because I think most of the time these forces of evil love to stay undercover because one of their greatest weapons is to make people think they don't exist. To make people think that, oh, the devil's just a made-up boogeyman. He's not real. But here, with the life of Jesus... In his authority and his truth and the fear of his judgment, they get panicked. <laughs> they don't want to be exposed. They want to stay undercover in the synagogue. They're happy staying in the seats of the synagogue, giving influence to all the religious leaders. But the moment Jesus steps in the synagogue, boom, the power of the king is there and they panic. They've been exposed and they cry out. And they're fearful of judgment. Now, isn't it interesting what he does? He rebukes him, verse 25, and says, hold thy peace, come out of him. He says this again over in verse 34. He says he doesn't want the devils to speak for they knew him. They were the only ones that knew him at this point. Why did Jesus want the devils to be quiet? Because he knew that the religious leaders were going to actually accuse him of delivering people from blindness, death, disease, and even exercising demons out of people like this man the religious leaders were going to be so willingly ignorant that they were going to say that Jesus cast out demons by the power of demons. And so Jesus wanted these guys to not be his PR campaign, right? He didn't want to give those guys any ammunition. And so Jesus wasn't interested in demons being his PR people. And so he told them, close your mouth. And they did. They obeyed. Um, and so the re reality is, is demons sit in every religious service. They, oftentimes, they stand in religious pulpits and put on the garb of spiritual leaders. But in Jesus' day, they were exposed with wildness, physical deformity, convulsive seizures, torment, self-mutilation, and screaming. Why? Because when you're in the presence of the king and his authority, it exposes you. And they were exposed. This demon knew the plan of God, but they didn't know the exact time of when they would be judged. In fact, it says over in another passage in Matthew 11, verse 12, that the kingdom of God suffers violence. I always wondered what that meant until I really got to studying this passage. And I think what that means is, is that with Jesus' arrival, there was a violent response from the spiritual realm to try to quench this, to try to stop this. But the king is unstoppable. The king has authority in his teaching. The king has authority in his power, his power over the forces of evil. But number two, his power over the fallenness of creation. Oh, I love this here. So after he heals or after he delivers this demon-possessed man, 
It says up in verse 29, and, and forthwith when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and, and immediately they told him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. So we see that Jesus has power and authority over the forces of evil, but, overall, but also over the fallenness of creation. Jesus gives us a glimpse into what the kingdom of God is going to look like when the curse is reversed. And there's no more death. There's no more pain. There's no more sickness. He gives people a glimpse of what this kingdom is going to look like because the curse of sin is what brought death, pain, and sickness, and isolation. He brings healing to the nations. It was prophesied that the son of righteousness would arise with healing in his wings. And so Jesus demonstrates his authority over the fallenness of creation through his healing. And what this healing shows is that Jesus is concerned with, and he's also king, not only over the spiritual realm, but also over the physical world. It's not simply a claim of authority, but it's also clear proof and exercise of Jesus' authority. He shows that he has real power over sickness. Just a touch of his hand and the fever was cured of Simon's wife's mother. And this happens over and over, as you see, verses 32 through 34. And at even when the sun did set, when most people would say it's quitting time, you know what, Jesus? He was just getting, getting fired up again, ready to do some more. It says they brought all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils and all the city was gathered at the door and he healed many that were sick of many diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. So Jesus here was showing us what the reverse of the curse would look like. Oh, so much truth here in this passage as we look at it. Don't have time to stop and look at all of it, but we see the teaching of the king and his authority there. We see the power of the king over the forces of evil, over the fallenness of his creation, and we, and we see his authority there. But then number three, we see the renown of the king. We see the renown of this king. Notice how this king's fame grew quickly. Look at verse 28. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. So the renown of this king grows. And we see even in that, the idea of his authority, that he is recognized as a king. Maybe people didn't understand that he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But clearly the renown of this king is also something that Mark is pointing out here. It says over in verse uh, 33, and all the city was gathered together at the door. Now, these and other clues, we get the idea that Mark was maybe younger because he loved to use words like all. Maybe it was every single person, but it was a lot of people. It was a lot of people. In fact, we're going to find in our study next week or maybe the week after that, yeah, the houses were filled with people so much so that they couldn't even get sick people in to see Jesus. But the renown, this is the idea here. Mark wants you to get the idea that the fame, the renown of Jesus traveled quickly. Now, what's interesting about that fame and that renown is Jesus didn't seem to want it. Again, as you study the book of Mark, you find that the demons were like ready to identify him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And he's like, shh. And then his fame, and, and what you find out is, is that he, he wants to get away from that. Why? 
Because in other gospels, as you study it out, what you find out is, is that people were not following Jesus for the right reasons. They were coming because of the spectacle that they had heard. You know, oh, a demon-possessed man in the synagogue? Whoa, let's go check that out. You know, they didn't have uh, Amazon Prime Video back in the day. I mean, this probably, for some, it was a form of entertainment, right? But maybe some were like, well, no, I mean, he can literally feed people Happy Meals out of nowhere. I mean, he can take one little Happy Meal that a boy brought from McDonald's. No, 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 probably not. But fish sticks and, and, uh, and uh, crackers, and, and he can make, feed 5,000? Dude, sign me up for a free lunch. I'll follow Jesus for that. Why do we follow Jesus? Why do we want to be here and, and to be in a relationship with him? And, and, and why do we follow him? Is it just for what he can give us in the moment? Or is it the reality that, or is it the reality that he is all that we need? And it's all found in him. And what he can do for, in a, for us in a moment far pales in comparison for what he can do for us in eternity. See, I think Jesus, although his renown grew quickly, his fame grew quickly, he didn't want it for a certain reason because he knew that a lot of those people were just following him for what he could give to them in the moment or because they just wanted to see a spectacle. Why do we follow Jesus? Are we willing to follow Jesus when no one else is there? When he really gets to some of the hard sayings that we're like, whoa, say that again? <laughs> I don't compute. Are we going to stay following him? See, that's, those are the moments that Jesus knew were coming. So we see the renown of the king. We see the authority even in that. The people were seeing this. They were recognizing that this man was different. He wasn't like any other prophet or any other rabbi or any other teacher. He had authority in his teaching, authority in his power, and authority in his renown. And then finally we see the authority in the call of the king. The authority in the call of the king. And that's where we go back to really the familiar verses that many of us have looked at over the years. 16 through 20 says, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Now, let me just say this. They were fishers, but not Saturday morning fishers only. <laughs> How many of you are a Saturday morning fisher? Raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you fish occasionally. You're not fishing for your livelihood. You're fishing for a trophy on a wall. I mean, you're not trying to catch hundreds of fish that you can survive on and, and feed your family with. These men were fishers by trade. This was their profession. So keep that in mind is what you're about to hear. So they weren't just, yeah, we'll see what we catch this morning. Maybe we can get a trophy. Big, largemouth bass put on the wall. No, that, no, 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 that wasn't it. This is their profession. This is their trade. And Jesus said unto them, come ye after me. I'm the king, come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Fishers of men. And straightway, they forsook their nets and followed him. We see here the call of the king was to follow this king. And what you see here that Mark is, I believe, trying to teach us is that not only does Jesus have authority in the words that he gives in a synagogue, and people recognize that, 
He also has authority in his power over the forces of evil, over the fallenness of creation. He has authority in the idea that people are recognizing his fame. His renown is growing. And then we see the call of the king. And I think what Mark is telling us here is that Jesus even has the authority to transform men's lives. This is a life-changing call. They were forsaking their entire life, all that they had known up until that point, and they were now going to follow him. Now, what's neat about this call is when you put the other gospels together with it, this was the miracle where they cast their nets into the sea and they pulled up a huge catch of fish. In fact, it was a financial windfall for them. So not only was it that they were leaving their profession, but they were leaving their profession at the greatest catch of their life when literally the nets were breaking as they were hauling in all these fish. And what Mark is, I think, showing us is that Jesus has the authority to transform men's lives. It's life-changing. Notice, number one, the uniqueness of this call. Notice that Jesus called them. This was unique in Jewish tradition of the first century. Why do I say that? Because it was unheard of for a rabbi to choose his pupils. That's not how it worked. If you were a good little Jewish boy and you wanted to be a part of the elite 1% religious class, because to be a part of the religious class in that day was like being a part of the 1% in America today. You were respected, you were a ruler, you were rich, you were religious, you were well-known. And so if you wanted to get into that crowd, you as a pupil would find a well-known rabbi and you would go and try to get that rabbi's approval and get him to allow you to follow him. It was the other way. In the first century, it was unheard of for a rabbi to go and choose his pupils. And certainly fishermen. Some have argued, and, and this is somewhat speculation, it's great stuff to think and study about, but some would argue that these men had tried to get a part of the rabbi elite they had tried to become a pupil of a rabbi, but they had been rejected by the earthly rabbis. They didn't have the stuff. And so they went back to their father's profession of fishing, and then Jesus comes along and he chooses them. So those who wished to learn sought out a rabbi and would say, I want to study with you. But Mark is showing us that Jesus has a different type of authority than regular rabbis. <laughs> Jesus calls men out and that call transforms their lives. So we see the uniqueness of the call. Then we see the commission of this call. Notice that Jesus takes their profession and he uses it in a way. He says, come ye after me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Now that's fascinating. This fishing metaphor was probably used because of the brother's occupation, but it also had an Old Testament background. In Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Habakkuk, the prophets used this fishing metaphor to express God's divine judgment. But Jesus would turn this metaphor on its head and use it to indicate the rescue of the souls of man. Jesus summoned these men to the task of gathering people out of the sea. Sea is also imagery in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah for those lost in sin and death. And so think about it. These men had just hauled in the greatest catch of their life. 
And what Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you'll catch greater. I wonder if Peter thought of these words on the day of Pentecost when he saw 3,000 souls come to know Christ. I wonder if in his mind he saw all those fishes in the net. And he said, yes, Lord. It's worthy of following you. I haven't been a perfect follower. I've failed you in my following. I've actually tried to go back to fishing. But Jesus, you're worthy of my life's pursuit. Your authority over the spiritual realm, your authority in your teaching, your authority over all things calls me to follow you. Notice the exclusivity of this call. He says, forsake your former places where you were looking for identity and security. Notice, they were going to leave the business. That was their place of security. I mean, if God told you to leave where you've been working and investing and building a business for the last 15, 20, 30 years tomorrow, how hard would that be? God, do you not know i got a family to take care of? This is my security. But this call to follow him is exclusive. It demands that we let go of what we're holding on to for security. So many times we don't follow because we're holding on to things that we're holding security in. But also, this call was a call to forsake your former identity because he said, or it says here that he came to another couple of guys, James, the, James, and, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were also in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee. Man, that is huge. When you're reading a first century document, that's huge. Everything was tied in your family. Your whole identity was tied in your family. And for these men to pick that up and leave both their security and their identity was huge. When Jesus says to Simon and Andrew, come follow me, at once they leave their vocation as fishermen and follow him. When he calls James and John, they leave behind their father and friends right there in the boat. We know from reading the rest of the Gospels that these men did fish again and they did continue to relate to their parents. In fact, it's not like they never talked to their family again. Look up at verses 29 through 31. There they are in, in Simon Peter's mother's wife there in the house. So the house of Simon and Andrew. So, so it's not like they shun their family. That's not what Jesus is asking for. He's not saying totally cast off your family, totally shun them, ignore them. What he's saying is, I want priority over your family. You see, in our, in our individualistic culture here in America, for us to leave mom and dad isn't that big of a deal. We're like, oh, yeah, you know, kids grow up, they go off to college, they leave the home. But in the first century, how, how the whole way of growing up worked is when the young man got old enough, he would actually add on to his father's house, and then his family would live right next door. Very close-knit. He's just saying, I'm not saying you can't ever talk to your family again, but I want you to know that it might come down to, are you going to follow me or are you going to follow rooting your identity in your family? Are you going to follow me or are you going to root your security in your job or your profession? Jesus is saying, knowing me, loving me, resembling me, serving me must become the supreme passion of your life. 
Everything else comes second. And so the call of the king is to follow him. But in light of everything we've studied, isn't that like an obvious decision? His words, his teaching has authority. That's what we need. His power, if he has power over the spiritual realm, he has power over every other realm. And he shows that on many occasions. Come and follow me. This is what Jesus is saying, not only to these men, but to us today as well. Jesus has the authority to just make us. You know, as I thought about this passage, I'm like, he told the demons to shut their mouth, and they did. You know what? Jesus has authority to just make us follow him. But that's not what he wants. The king of love wants us to follow him because we truly see him as worthy of being followed. God doesn't want robots. He could just snap his fingers and make us do it. But that's not what he wants. This is a love relationship. And what is the essence of love? A free will choice to love someone. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, follow me. I love how one writer put it. I love this quote. Follow me because I'm the king you've been looking for. Follow me because I have authority over everything, yet I have humbled myself for you because I died on the cross for you when you didn't have the right beliefs or the right behavior because I have brought you news and not advice because I am your true love and your true life. Follow me. Don't you want to follow him? What's interesting is you think about this command to follow, this call to follow, as Jesus himself did absolutely everything he's calling us to do. When he called James and John to leave their father in the boat, he had already left his father's throne. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace. So this king, bringing in the kingdom of God, he is the king of all authority. Authority in his teaching, authority in his power, authority in his renown, and authority in the call that he gives to our life. And listen, he has authority to make us follow, but he wants us to follow. He wants this to be your decision. Will you leave the, every, everything you're holding on to for security? Will you leave the things that you might be holding on to for identity and follow him? Let's pray.